We'll worship God now in the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning to Ephesians chapter 2. These days on Sunday mornings, over the course of these four Sunday mornings, we are celebrating the 50th birthday of our denomination. It was in December of 1973 that the Presbyterian Church in America was formed. So as I've been saying, this is an opportunity for us, and we're going to seize this opportunity to think again and to rejoice again in what the Word of God teaches about the Church of God, why the Church is a very good gift of God, why we are blessed to have been drawn in so that we are numbered among her members. Fifty years is a milestone worth marking. And these weeks we're marking it by making the most of that three-part slogan that the PCA adopted early on as a way of capturing the things that we've always been committed to as a denomination. And you've been hearing it. Faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And last week, we focused on the first of those. Faithful to the Scriptures, and you may remember we turned to the book of the prophet Jeremiah in order to focus on that theme. God saying, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Jeremiah 23. Yes, the word of the Lord is like that. And we've been committed as a denomination for 50 years to a word that is of that very character because we want that word, to have its way in our lives. We want the word of God, which we have in the scriptures, to govern our lives and to govern our life as a church. So that was last week. Faithful to the scriptures, that brings us to this week, the second part of that three-part slogan, which is true to the Reformed faith. True to the Reformed faith, and as I mentioned, we're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, The reason why we're turning to Ephesians 2 has to do with just what we mean by the Reformed faith. When we talk about the Reformed faith or Calvinism, what we're talking about is a particular system of beliefs that we say are taught by the Bible. It's not a theological system that's in addition to the Bible. It's not a theological system that we made up on our own, which we then foist upon the Bible. No, it's a system of beliefs that we say are taught by the Bible. And we want to be true to that faith. So last week it was faithful to the Scriptures. Well, really, this week is a way of of unpacking that and saying more about what we mean by that. We want to be faithful to the Scriptures. Well, then, we're resolved to be true to the system of truth that we believe the Scriptures give us. And at the heart of that system that we've nicknamed the Reformed faith or Calvinism, at the heart of that system is the belief, as I was saying earlier when we turned to Jonah, the belief that God gets all the credit for our salvation from start to finish. He is sovereign in it. The Reformed faith, or Calvinism, is simply the theological system that exalts in that conviction, boasts in it, glories in it, 
seeks to confess that truth happily and consistently. God gets all the credit for our salvation. And whenever you're talking about that, whenever you're exploring that theme, Ephesians 2 is a very, very good place to go. So let me read for us Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We want to be faithful to the scriptures. We want to be true to the faith that is taught by these writings. And we pray that you would grant us grace to that end. Bless us even now as we hear and consider your word. Give us ears to hear it, that we might be true to it indeed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, when we were making our way through the whole book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, we took several weeks just to get through this one passage. There is a lot in it. It's rich. This time we're not. This time it's going to be just this one Sunday. And so this time it is going to feel like a sweeping survey of this whole passage in just one sermon. But there's a place for that. There's a place for noticing the sweep of a larger passage in one glance. Verses 1 through 10. A handy way of thinking about this larger passage, verses 1 through 10, is to think of it as a symphony in three movements. Verses 1 through 3. And then 4 through 7, and then 8 through 10. Movement number 1, verses 1 through 3. Movement number 2, verses 4 through 7. Movement number 3, verses 8 through 10. By the time the orchestra is done playing this symphony, you are positively exulting in the conviction that God gets all the credit for our salvation from start to finish. Symphonies are sometimes given names. We'll call this one the gospel symphony in Ephesians 2. 
the gospel symphony. And not only that, but you may know, usually the discrete movements in a symphony are labeled with the Italian terms that are meant to capture what the movements feel like, what a particular movement's mood is, so that the orchestra has a sense of how to play it. So we'll do that too. Let's label these movements. Movement number one in this gospel symphony is labeled Lamentoso. And it's Italian, so you've got a Lamentoso, like lamentations. Lamentoso, which means mournfully, sorrowfully. That's what this opening movement feels like so that the orchestra knows that's how it ought to be played. Look again at verses 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Lamentoso. That's the opening movement. And it's kind of like in the program for the concert where there are notes that you can read before it's played so that you have some idea of what you're going to hear in it. Well, we can reflect now upon what we hear in this opening movement. What, what do we hear? What strains? What tone? Well, let me point out two things in particular. First of all, spiritual deadness is in there. Paul's pulling no punches here. He's reminding them what they were, what was true of them. He says, you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is a blunt assessment. It really was that bad. They were dead. Which means, first of all, that they were unresponsive to God, right? Turned away from Him, cold toward Him, deathly cold. They were unresponsive to God. Paul says, You were dead, not sick, not declining. Not even in really bad shape. Dead. So it means they were unresponsive to God. Second of all, it means that they were devoid of the experience of God. They didn't know God. They were cut off from God. Jesus says eternal life is to know God. Well then, spiritual death is to be cut off from Him. So that you don't know Him. So that you don't know His favor. So that you don't experience the richness and rejoicing of a relationship with him. And third of all, it also means that they were powerless to change that. It's what it means to be dead. Powerless. No capacity within themselves to turn themselves back to God. So as to know God after all. They were dead. It really was that bad. Unresponsive to God. Not knowing God and utterly powerless to change any of that. 
So that strain can be heard in this opening movement, spiritual deadness. And here's the other one, divine wrath. Divine wrath is in there as well. Verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's verse 3. What Paul's saying there, and notice, he's including himself in that, is that before they came to Christ, the people that he's writing to were the objects of God's wrath. And not just the Ephesians, not just the Ephesians plus Paul, but he says like the whole of mankind. This is one aspect of the human condition apart from the grace of God. It is to be rightly under the wrath of God. Now, we all know, as soon as you start talking about divine wrath, you're talking about a concept that is either widely misunderstood or violently repudiated or sarcastically mocked, maybe all of the above. To talk about divine wrath is to cause eyebrows to raise and objections to arise. But in the Bible, the reality of wrath as something that God feels and reveals is unmistakable. Again, the book of Nahum is pretty clear on this. Right out of the gate, the prophet Nahum writes this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2. Obviously, those are hard words. Brothers and sisters, that's our God. That is the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching is that God feels divine anger toward those who remain rebels against his rule. And it is a righteous anger. And it is a controlled anger. It's a righteous anger. God isn't misguided in his anger the way sometimes we are. And it is a controlled anger. God himself is in complete control of the ways that he demonstrates his wrath. He's not out of control with his anger the way we often are. Divine wrath. And the point is that's exactly what people are. Rebels against his rule until they've experienced his power and grace in their lives. Rebels against him. Not living by his word not trusting in his grace. And they still stand guilty before him of that rebellion. And the only way that's going to change is if their hearts are changed so that they come back to God and their sins are forgiven. That's the only way. Until that happens, they remain the objects of his wrath. So yes, Paul's writing to people who are now under the favor of God. But he's saying, don't forget Don't forget what you were. Don't forget what you would still be if it weren't for the grace of God turning you back to him so as to be forgiven by him. So, brothers and sisters, that is movement number one in our symphony. Lamentoso. Mournfully. Sorrowfully. Spiritual deadness. And divine wrath, those are the strains, those are the themes in this opening movement. 
lamentoso. So movement number one comes to an end. At that point in the performance of the symphony, there's a pause before the orchestra starts to play the second movement. Sometimes the conductor will even continue to hold his baton up for everyone to see so that everyone can see and be reminded that that was only the first movement. There's yet more to come. And you know how it works. You're not supposed to clap between movements. It might even feel strange to clap after lamentoso, deadness and wrath. That quiet pause is a chance to let that first movement sink in. So brothers and sisters, let it sink in. It's easy to lose sight of what we were, what we would still be, if it weren't for the grace of God in our lives, changing us, bringing us back to God so as to be forgiven by him. That's movement number one. And then, happily, it's time for movement number two. Movement number two in this gospel symphony is labeled with the Italian word vivace, like vivacious. Vivace, which means up-tempo and lively. And that is what this movement begins to feel like especially as it goes on. Vivace, which is the perfect term because vivace, vivacious, comes from the word that means life, alive. And sure enough, that is the dominant theme here in movement number two. Look at it. Look at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So there's that glance back to movement number one. You know how sometimes one movement will pick up on a theme that you heard before, but in a different way. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This movement, too, is rich and vivacious. What's in there? Well, first of all, here's a theme, here's a strain in movement number two the source of our salvation. And in one word, that source is God. God saves. As Jonah put it, salvation is of the Lord. God is the source of our salvation. And notice how how Paul unpacks it here. He refers to the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God. God's mercy, that's his goodness shown to people who deserve otherwise. It's treating people not as their sins deserve. And notice what Paul says here. God's mercy is rich. And God's love is is the outgoing of his heart so as to save. 
And notice what Paul says here. God's love is great. And his grace, right? Not just mercy, not just love, but also grace. God's grace is the unmerited favor that he shows to sinners in order to save them. And notice Paul says his grace is immeasurable. The source of salvation is God. The mercy and love and grace of God. The rich mercy, the great love, the immeasurable grace of God. That's what explains, that's what accounts for the fact that we are redeemed now. The source of our salvation. Notice this as well in movement number two. Not just the source of our salvation, but then secondly, the substance of it. In other words, what exactly has God done in order to save us? This God who has all of this mercy and grace and love that he's shown us, what exactly has he done? Well, Paul says, he has made us alive. Thus, vivace, vivacious. God has made us alive together with Christ, Paul says. So the deadness that we talked about before, no surprise, the good news, the wonderful news is that life, real life, amounts to that awful deadness turned round on every score. So that now, God made us alive. Well, then now we're responsive to God. We hear his word and we go running to it. Believing in it, rejoicing in the sound of his voice. We're responsive to God. It also means that we're experiencing a relationship with God. We're not cut off from him anymore. We know God and are known by him. And it means that we're, well, lively, spiritually powerful and active now, spiritually living, moving, acting, seeking to grow in life and finding that growth. God made us alive. And at the risk of stating the obvious, he did that sovereignly. You did not make yourself alive. You couldn't. In the nature of the case, those who are spiritually dead cannot bring themselves back to spiritual life. It had to be God. It had to be all God. You cannot do justice to this passage in Ephesians 2 if you come away from it thinking, yeah, but I cooperated with God in the inauguration of my salvation. Now you were dead. He made you Alive, You did not cooperate so as to set your salvation in motion. Now that you have been made alive, yes, you are seeking the grace of God. But if you go back to the beginning, the very beginning of spiritual life in your life, you were not a partner with God. You were not a co-life maker. God made you alive and he was sovereign in it. And notice this as well, thinking about the substance of our salvation, right? What what did God do? Not only did he make us alive, but Paul says he raised us up. We are raised and seated with Christ. That's in verse 6. God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's triumph in that. Christ has been raised and seated as the victorious one, and now we are victorious in him. We are more than conquerors. 
And there's a note of security in that being raised and seated. There's security in there. When we believe in Christ, we're now, we're now guarded. We're now kept safe from the evil powers that would totally undo us. There's security in it. And there's also fellowship in it. When we believe in Christ, we enter into a fellowship with him. God has raised us up and seated us with Jesus. So here's movement number two. The source of our salvation. God's mercy and love and grace. And the substance of our salvation. Made alive, raised up, seated. And then this as well. Here in movement number two. What's the goal of it? This God who is rich in mercy, great in love, immeasurable in grace. This God who's made us alive and raised us up. Why did he do it? Now there are a lot of true Bible answers to that question. Why did God save us? Here's Paul's answer in this passage. Look at verse 7. God did all of this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here in Ephesians 2, that's the why. That's the aim. That's the goal. God's purpose for saving us was the eternal display of his own grace. For all of eternity, we the church are going to be the personal display of the immeasurable riches of the grace of God. For all eternity, everybody in the universe is going to be able to look at us and say, look at them. Look at them. They were dead, but now they're alive. Look at them. They were downtrodden, but now they've been raised and seated with Jesus. How great must the grace be? That accomplished that. How great and gracious must the God be who made them alive and raised them up like that? So, brothers and sisters, that's movement two in our symphony. Vivace, upbeat, lively, the source of our salvation, God's mercy and love and grace, the substance of it, we've been made alive and raised up, and the goal of it. The glory of his own grace on display in us. That's movement number two. And as before, as movement number two comes to an end, the conductor still has his baton in the air. And so it's quiet. There's no applause. And again, that quiet moment is an opportunity for us To let what we have just heard sink in. So I say it to you again after movement number two. Let it sink in. And be encouraged by this. I know we all struggle with sin. I know there are days when it is tough to get out of bed in the morning. We don't always feel upbeat and lively. Whether in Italian or in English. We don't always feel vivacious. And some of us perhaps are feeling that this very morning in this very room. So let it sink in. 
God has made you, Christian. God has made you alive in Christ Jesus and has raised you up. And that's something that's true of you that outsizes all of your weakness and sin. It's not that the weakness that you feel and the sin that you wrestle with are imaginary. No, they are real. It's just that this is capital R, real. This is the deepest, truest thing that's true of you now. You're alive. And you've been raised up. And and you have been made alive with a life that will never be snuffed out, that will never be taken away. You have been made alive with a life that will only grow and prevail until the day of Christ Jesus. That's movement number two. Now, this is a three-movement symphony. And so after Vivace, the conductor brings down his baton and the symphony orchestra is into movement number three. And this one is labeled Grandioso. And let me say, I had so much fun going to Wikipedia and looking over all of the various Italian musical terms and what they mean. And I thought grandioso would be good for movement number three because it means grand, broad, noble. That's what this movement feels like, verses 8 through 10. Grandioso, there is something grand and broad and noble about the... The vast perspective on our salvation that Paul gives us in these three verses. Verses 8 through 10. Look at them again. Verse 8. And and here too, he's he's picking up on strains that we just heard in movement 2. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's movement number three. And again, we, we turn, even in the dark of the concert hall, to glance at the program notes, to be instructed, to be reminded, what are the, what are the strains, what are the themes that we're going to hear Here in movement number three. Well, first of all, this. We're reminded, as we already have been, salvation is by grace. For by grace you have been saved. Salvation is by grace. This as well, Paul teaches us here that salvation is through faith. Salvation is through faith. Through trust in Christ. It was by extending the empty, needy hand of trust in Jesus that you received all of those saving benefits that came to be yours when you first came into Christ. By your faith, you laid hold of him. And when you did, you came into the possession of all that's to be found in him. So your sins were forgiven. You were pronounced acceptable in the sight of God the judge. You were given the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is through faith. 
This, this is well in movement number three. Salvation, in case it's not clear, Paul makes it clear, salvation is not our achievement. Paul says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This salvation that's by grace, that's received through faith, Paul wants to make it very clear, you cannot pat yourself on the back for this and take any credit for this salvation so that no one may boast. To be sure, this is a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. This is a truth that a lot of people struggle to grasp, the idea that salvation is a free gift and that it's not something that we can earn, not something that we can even contribute to. I know we've told this story before, but it is apt again here. When we used to give out free Bibles on the campus of George Mason, we'd go to campus and set up a table and pile it high with Bibles and put out a sign that said, Free Bibles. And it wasn't uncommon that a student would come up to us and say, what do I have to do to get a free Bible? They'd come up to us and say, are they really free? To the point that I wanted to put up a second sign that said, yes, they're really free. And so we'd have to explain, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to give us your email address. Just take it. It's really free. That's telling when you can't even give away free stuff to a college student without running the suspicion that there's got to be a catch. There was no catch. Just take it. Salvation is not our achievement. That that stings our pride. But it is the sweetest to those who by grace have been humbled. And then this too, this last theme here in movement number three, this salvation that's by grace, that's through faith, that's not our doing, it is unto good works. Again, that's the goal of it here. We're not saved by our good works, but that doesn't mean good works are not involved. They are. We are saved so that we will do them, so that we will live lives that testify to this grace that's made us new. That's in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our good works. We're saved so that we will do them. Yes, we we do good works, But God is the primary worker here. The God who created all things in the beginning is now recreating us. The God who created mankind in his image in the beginning is now recreating us so that we shine with his image after all. And that image shows in our lives as we walk in the good works that he's called us to be about. So that, brothers and sisters, is movement three in our symphony. Grandioso. Grand, broad, noble. That's our salvation by grace, through faith, 
Not our doing, not by our good works, but unto good works after all. And so movement free, grandioso indeed, comes to a conclusion. And you know, there's that moment where the symphony ends, and you know it was the last movement, but it's as if everybody waits, perhaps holding their breath, until the baton really comes down. And at that point, that's when we rise to our feet and burst out in rapturous applause and shouts of bravo, or perhaps fittingly bravissimo, echo in the hall, perhaps with tears streaming down our cheeks because we're so moved by all that we've heard. Not just that last movement, but all three of them. The applause is relentless and rapturous and joyful. And that is the gospel symphony. Composed by the Apostle Paul in the sense that he wrote this letter, but ultimately composed by the one who is the God of the gospel. These three movements, Lamentoso and Vivace and Grandioso. God gets all the credit for our salvation from start to finish. That truth is taught by this passage, and we've seen it in the sweeping survey today. That truth is at the heart of the Reformed faith, or Calvinism. And for 50 years, our denomination, the PCA, has sought to be true to that faith, including this truth that Paul lays out here. And for 33 of those 50 years, new hope has been true to it as well. You were dead, lamentoso. God made you alive and raised you up, vivace. By grace you have been saved through faith unto good works, grandioso. Let's be refreshed in these truths again today. Let's be renewed in our own determination to be true to these truths. Every Christian, I mean, every genuine believer deep down understands that God gets all the credit for the whole of our salvation from start to finish. Every Christian deep down understands that. Whatever they might say about themselves theologically, What we want to be true of us is that we glory in this truth as those who have embraced the Reformed faith or Calvinism instead of fashioning a theological system that's actually at odds with that truth that resides deeply within us so that we end up, in effect, at odds with ourselves and who we truly are deep down as believers in the Lord Jesus. That's what's so wonderful about saying it and saying it unapologetically that we want to be true to the Reformed faith. We're saying we have embraced this system of of beliefs that we say are taught by the Bible and we're not going to shrink back from them. We're going to glory in them and we're going to do our best for our good as the church and for our testimony to the world to, cons- to confess them consistently and to rejoice in them truly. 
We don't want to be at odds with ourselves. We don't want to be at odds with what, with what God has taught here. And even with the words that we find here in a passage like this one. The words matter. Because of what they mean. Dave's been teaching lately on Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And among other things, that classic book reminds us that anybody can use the terms. Anybody can use the vocabulary of the Bible and the Reformed faith and Calvinistic convictions. The question is, are you using those terms in a way that actually captures and honors what the Bible teaches? And are you using those terms as an expression of a genuine faith that resides within you? A faith that is all three of the things that we've just noticed. A faith that is lamenting. And faith laments. A faith that is lamenting. And then a faith that is lively. And then a faith that is grand. Let us seek the Lord again that ours might be a faith like that. Let us seek the Lord again that we might be true to that biblical, reformed faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, for all that it teaches, including what we've been taught here this morning for the strains and tones and themes that we've heard in this gospel symphony that is ultimately your composition for us to hear. We pray that we might make our way from having heard this symphony with its themes sinking in and taking root, that we might take with us what we've heard that it might show in our lives to the praise of your grace in the good works that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.